Hello, welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. In any crisis, who you blame often comes down to where you start the story. Take the humanitarian crisis at our southern border. And yes, I'm calling it a crisis as the current administration keeps stating that it is not a crisis. Well, it sure is a crisis for thousands of refugees and migrants caught in limbo between the United States and something that the United States has created. And who specifically created this crisis? Who specifically should we blame? Trump, Obama, and Biden? The CIA? The United Fruit Company? How about everybody of love? And let's move on from blame to know we are going to solve this humanitarian crisis before more people die and more lives are ruined. So I visited Guatemala last week and I, this was the highlight of my trip. Um, I spoke directly to one of the casualties of this forever war. His name is Cesar Morales. Uh, Cesar is a father. Uh, I met him as he guided me on a beautiful hike through the mountains of Guatemala. And through the several hours that we went through those mountains climbing, he told me generously, uh, he chose to tell me in detail his story, but he was extremely clear. He wanted me to understand the details of what happens when you are detained at the border the details of every step of the journey, the human toll, the details as to why he took that journey. And he wants you and others to know his story. He didn't know he was with a reporter. He did not know that I had a YouTube show. <laughs> he just knew I was an American and he felt it was his duty to make sure that as an American, I understood what was happening. I've read the headlines, I've read stories, I've watched videos, I've seen people visiting, I've uh, read interviews with people who have been detained at the border. I personally have been detained at the border many years ago. <laughs> another story for another time. Um, I've lived at the border. I've never heard aspects of what happens. Um, when you're detained and, 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 and what happens when you are on that journey as I had with Cesar telling his story. So he tried to make it to America. He took out a loan for $1,500 to be able to pay the coyotes. The coyotes of course are the people who very exploitative, uh, sometimes dangerous, who take the migrants on this journey, sometimes at the start of the base country, whether it's Guatemala or Honduras or El Salvador, through Mexico to the border, sometimes it's halfway into Mexico. Uh, I will spare you all of the details, but I want you to understand something very important. He took out a loan in Guatemala for $1,500 that he believes he's going to be paying off for the next 10 years. Now, we know that the end of the story is he survived, but he is back in Guatemala. He did not, he was not able to stay in the U.S. I asked him first off, did you know, did you know what it was going to be like when you got to the border? And he said, no. And of the stories and of the people that we know that did make it in the United States, they don't share those aspects. There is absolutely propaganda that is uh, pushed out and, and the information is not 
uh, dispersed the way that it is here in the United States, right? So let's keep that in mind. So he took out this loan. Um, he left his family, his children, his parents, or his his, his parents and his his wife, and uh, the the journey started through Mexico. So he stopped in several cities along the way in Mexico. He was housed in different facilities. Um, there were hundreds, sometimes thousands of people in these facilities. Uh, one in particular uh, in, in, a, in a town called Puebla uh, in Mexico, he was uh, in a house where they were feeding him once a day, the coyotes, a small egg once a day. And it was freezing. He said all of these places were super, 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 super cold. And he did not have blankets. He didn't even have a, he was in that situation. He was sharing a cot with somebody that that was the more humane situation. I'm going to flash forward a little bit. So he gets to the United States to the border and he, um, he, 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 <laughs> he was put in a car, um, in a van. And if we can all imagine a van, like 15 seater van, one of those shuttle vans, the bottom, uh, what, there were no seats in it. Right. Let's make that very clear. They, they were transporting something. So the whole goal, the, the, the cover was this van was going to be transporting goods. Now, underneath is where all the migrants were. And he said uh, there were about a dozen of them laying like squish, squished like sardines underneath. And there was a small hole where the, ox, where the oxygen was coming through. And don't forget, this is the summertime a few year, two years ago. And it's extremely hot. And he said that there were people sitting next to him that were having trouble breathing that had breathing issues. It was unbearable, um, impossible to breathe, but that is where they caught them. So ICE takes them and um, they went to those, those camps that we all see. But here's the part of the story that I had never heard before, these two parts. Um, and I'm not, you know, as I said, I'm not telling you the whole, all the details. So he was detained by ICE. Um, he said all of the ICE representatives, and this was really confusing to him. He didn't understand why. And I said it was psychological. It's, it's a form of psychological warfare. All of them were people of color, of Spanish descent, maybe first generation or second generation. And they were cruel and lined the migrants up like they're prisoners. And shackled their ankles and their wrists and their necks. And they lined everybody up, and I, 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 I had never heard this before. Um, and they put them in a little house, and he showed me the size of the house. And he said there were literally a thousand people squished in, and they were forced to stand up next to each other in this tiny little house. We've never seen the cameras go there before. Later, for a week, he told me, this is don't forget, he's detained by ICE. They're not sending him back. They're just holding him. For a week, they made him work in the fields. I don't know what farming they were doing, but... And he was paid $1 a day. And I said, why? What? I've, I've never heard that before. Why did they make you do that? And he said, uh, that was the money that he would have to get back home. So he does not have phone contact with his family. They don't know if he's alive. This is the, 
this is the, you know, this is a hundred and something degrees at the border and he's in Laredo, Texas. He was transported to different places, facilities, by the way, in different cities. And then finally they, um, they did send him back to Guatemala on a plane and uh, he was dropped off. He didn't have his phone. He wasn't able to contact his parents and his, 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 um, his wife and his children. And he had him find his way back to his town, which is five hours away from Guatemala City on a lake called um, La Guadalajara. Um, that is just a brief part of Caesar's story. He, I'm hoping to interview him soon. Um, there is more to the story. He is willing to talk on camera. Uh, of course, this is all in Spanish and I'm sure there's little details I didn't pick up. But I got back from Guatemala and Cesar Morales to the news that Kamala Harris is planning to go to Guatemala. What does it mean for the U.S. vice president to go to Guatemala? What is her purpose? To convince the Guatemalans and the Mexicans to commit more troops and police at their borders and to actually police their borders? To tell Cesar Morales to stay home and other Guatemalans to stay home? Seriously, telling desperate people to stay home when they can't afford to feed their children or their families and or their families are at risk and in danger. He told me. He could not find work. And when he did, it wasn't paying enough to feed his children. It is a cold and heartless and frankly pointless. It is absolutely pointless to send that message if that is what she's doing. Let's be clear, the United States over generations created the economic conditions that led Cesar Morales to attempt his desperate trek north. Some succeed, others die trying. Many end up like Cesar, sent home to a place with no jobs, no economic hope, and sometimes put at physical risk. To borrow from Colin Powell from another crisis created by our policies, we broke it, we own it. The inhumane nightmare at the detention centers is a reflection of the crisis. It is not the crisis itself. Tweaking conditions so they are not as horrifying is just a Band-Aid. And telling people to stay home is not fixing the vast economic inequality that caused Cesar Morales and thousands of others to leave their homes. We have to have a serious conversation about what we are doing and how our demands for economic justice, justice must not stop at the southern border. If Vice President Harris is going to visit Mexico and Guatemala to start this conversation, then good for her. But if this is yet a new version of the message to stay home, then Kamala Harris is the one that should be staying home. All right, we have a wonderful show today. Uh, we have Harvey Kay, of course, here. He is going to talk about uh, the Biden administration and all of the comparisons to FDR. Uh, we're going to do some debunking there with the expert on FDR and his legacy. And uh, later we have Rep. Rab and Arun Chowdhury here to talk about today's news. It's Thursday. We love Thursdays. We will be right back after this little break. Everybody. Uh, welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Often uh, frequent guest of the show, Professor Harvey Kay is here. He is also frequent uh, chat room star. <laughs> uh, professor Harvey Kay is Professor Emeritus at University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. He is an author of many, many books, uh, one including 
one of our book club books, our first book club book, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. And then The Fight for Four Freedoms, which is very relevant to today's conversation, uh, FDR on Democracy, and Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again. Those are just a few. So... Oh, we just got a little note. Look at this. Before the cause says, Professor Harvey K, I gifted your book to a Thomas Paine fan, and they are now a Professor Harvey K fan too. <laughs> so there you go. Can you hear me? Oh, yes. You sound can you, great. Can you tell us? I, this is, I, sh I keep forgetting how I'm supposed to set this. If I'm going to use this microphone, when I plug this into the, my, my laptop, I lose your voice. So should I be set? Ask Dorsey quickly. What, what should I be set to? Same system, built-in mic. What should I do? You should have your headset plugged into your computer. Oh yeah. Okay. Not oh. into the microphone. <laughs> I am not a tech expert, but I do know that. <laughs> I don't even. I haven't. I don't even have a headset here. So hold on. But you that can solve me. the problem. But you can now. hear me. <laughs> I can hear you right now. But am I okay without the mic? Then. Yeah, you're. You're fine. Let's just. Okay. Yeah. Let's screw the mic. Let's now. make okay. sure we keep the audience excited and engaged because right. we are here to debunk. This propaganda that is being pushed out by the Biden administration that he is FDR incarnate. <laughs> Tell us, Professor uh, Harvey K, where know, are they getting this idea from and who is their publicist? Because it seems like every uh, journalist who echoes the CIA's talking points likes to echo these talking points. Did I say that? <laughs> I wish I could name the publicist, but I can definitely tell you who the journalists are who are doing this. I mean, there was a piece the other day in the New York Times and everyone was sending me the link. And I don't know if they were sending me the link to make me happy to see it or to, or to piss me off. And it was a piece by Jonathan Alter. I know Jonathan Alter, he's a liberal and, and he's utterly inadequate, okay? I'll, I mean, he's utterly, <laughs> seriously, I mean, he's utterly inadequate because Every time he writes about FDR, and I'll mention that, that the title of this, did, did Dorsey get my thing that I sent him? Yes, we're, we're gonna put it on screen right now. The, the th he writes about FDR as if he's already, sorry, he writes about Biden as if he's already FDR. And he reviews all the, of, the, of the things that, that Biden has accomplished, which is actually one item, okay. And then he goes on to talk about the things he's likely to accomplish, by the way, which are which at this moment, I don't think he's likely to accomplish. Okay. So, so let's let, what are some of these things that, okay. he's, so that he claims he's likely to accomplish? The Dems did succeed because of the uh, reconciliation option in passing the American Rescue Plan. But let's be very clear about it. The American Rescue Plan is a very welcome bill be that became an act, but it's temporary. Okay, it, the things that they're hyping about the tax credits for children and some similar kinds of things, they all run out later in later, at, you know, towards the end of the year, if not exactly at the end of the year. And they've talked about including this, these tax credits in the American Families Plan, I think it's going to be called something like that. But I don't see I don't see any guarantees. Oh, th this is not yet the piece, by the way, this is this is I got it. Don't just keep talking. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> there it is. How FDR is. We have to cut this up, Arby. <laughs> you got to stay focused. <laughs> Pretend you're on MSNBC. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, you know what it is? How about this? I'll make everyone giggle a bit. It's so exciting to see you back on as I did yesterday after the hiatus that I can't think straight. How's that? <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> seriously, though. It, so, so there is this American Rescue Plan, as I was saying, and, uh, but its its main things run out at the end of the year. And then they say that this will all, might well become permanent beyond this year, 
but there's no guarantee. And in fact, there's already hedging and there's already talk from even the more progressive elements of the National Economic, was it National Economic Council, whatever it's called that they've got, who are saying they're gonna be looking for ways to fund the later stuff. Well, if they're looking for ways to fund it and they're not gonna do it by way of what Stephanie Kelton's arguments are about MMT, then we're probably in trouble because they're gonna whittle away. You know they're gonna whittle away. So it's okay. So the American Rescue Plan, yes. Over the horizon, the infrastructure plan known as the American Jobs Plan, and then beyond that, the American Family Plan. Those, those, those are still in limbo, you might say, because the American Jobs Plan, which is the most immediate one, which is the 2.2 or $3 trillion plan, which is very innovative in that it's not only what the traditional notions of infrastructure are, but also relate, but also certain welfare act, social welfare activities are, that are included. But even there, this is it's a bill of 2.2 to 3 trillion that's going to be sort of spent over the course of 10 years. Now, there's no way, there's no way that that's going to dramatically change the American infrastructure landscape in the way that we need to do it according to Biden's own rhetoric. So that's troublesome. But then, and so, so these are the kinds of things that uh, Jonathan Alter and similar liberal pundits have been, I, I don't know if it's because so many of them are, even if they're not living inside the Beltway, their souls are inside the Beltway, that it seems. Or they want to have or, their or souls in the Beltway. They want, yeah, right. Maybe, yeah. They, you know, maybe, maybe they all want to be, uh, what's her name? What's the name of his uh, press secretary? Um, uh, John Saki. Saki. I always make a mistake in how to pronounce it. There's a P at the beginning, I think. Or Saki. Something. Saki. Yeah. She's Greek. Yeah. Anyhow, come back to this. So, so they're making these kind of pitches. But they're all missing a fundamental point, okay? And I'm jumping over a lot of stuff here. And the fundamental point is that Biden has talked about becoming FDR-like. And everyone has talked about a transformational presidency. The transformation will not occur alone by way of innovations in social welfare, which will be welcome, okay? Or if he doesn't accomplish those things by way of merely the infrastructure plan, in part because it's too small and in part because infrastructure is essential and imperative but not transformational, especially if you're treating the infrastructure plan as repair work to the, to the existing infrastructure. Where am I going in this? My point about this is, and I, and I think, you know, it's funny, I think you and I have talked about this regularly for about a year now, and obviously they didn't listen closely enough in, inside the Beltway. If you're gonna be transformational, you must accomplish a change in the political and economic order. Now, that has occurred in American history. It occurred, obviously, at the, at the time of the founding. But even more significantly, it occurred under Lincoln. And it occurred under FDR. And to some extent, to some extent, it did occur under Johnson, obviously, by way of, you know, Immigration civil reform, by way, and most essentially civil rights and voting rights. Mm -hmm. Well, they've got two plans before them, two acts that they have got to figure out. I mean, this is not just Biden and the this is and the Democrats. They have got to figure out how are they are going to put into place the For the People Act, 
which by the way, in its own way is a kind of repair bill to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, because look at what these Republican legislators are doing. Oh, I mean, we talked about this on the show yesterday, hundreds of bills in the state legislatures, right, attacks right. on, on, on voting rights and, you know, yeah, uh, it yeah everything. dramatically affect the rights of obviously African-Americans in many places, of poor and elderly, by the way, of young people in many cases, I would imagine. They're, they're trying basically to disable voters who they think, they know, are going to vote for Democrats, okay? So that's first. I mean, you, you can't get much more fundamental than the right to vote, because this goes all the way back. Somebody mentioned Thomas Paine in a nice note to you. Thomas Paine said it back in 17, I think it was probably 80s, okay? The right to vote is the, is the right that protects all of the other rights. Which, by the way, again, is a historical footnote, because maybe people in the chat enjoy these kinds of references. It's the case that Susan B. Anthony, when she actually did vote in 1872 or 76, and was then charged with casting an illegal ballot, and went out on, the, on a, a lecture tour of New York State, she said, as Thomas Paine said, this is the right that protects all other rights and we must have this right, that kind of thing. Well, anyhow, so let's imagine that there's that in front of them and not imagine, they've got to get rid of the filibuster. There's no way that they can avoid getting rid of the filibuster. But now I want to go to another act and I don't think this is any less essential for transformational presidency. In fact, I would say this, the For the People Act is fundamental if you want at all to maintain the promise of American democracy, period, in a political democratic sense. But there's the other element, and the other element is this, you must pass the PRO Act, which will change the relations. It's in many ways a restorative act as well, going back to the 1935 National Labor Relations Act, which empowered working men and women with the right to organize and bargain collectively. Okay, which was then seriously, seriously damaged by the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, which enabled the South to start with to become a right to work region. That is where you, you did not have to pay dues to a union if you could even get the union to begin with. And it, weakens la it weakened labor's capacity in a whole array of ways to force the employer to recognize their right to a union and collective bargaining. So the PRO Act, which would literally both restore the rights that were supposed to be there in 1935, which by the way, also in 1935, it placed the federal government, the National Labor Relations Board and the federal government behind workers' efforts to organize it. It was not to be a mediation or arbitration device. I it was understand. meant to be an empowerment. An advocate for. Advocate, exactly. Yeah. And that ended with, that ended too in 1947. By the way, I'll also add that 1947, it also led compelled labor unions. They didn't all do it, but the overwhelming majority did to, to basically throw out any leaders that they had who were members of the Communist Party. Right. Or who they thought were members of the Communist Party. Right. Anyone that basically <laughs> who smelled or who looked like one, was, sounded like one, had an yeah, ethnic it was last name. McCarthy, because <laughs> McCarthy came late to McCarthyism, but it was indeed House on American Activities Committee moments in which they came after. And by the way, again, I'm saying these things, I want to make it clear. 
McCarthyism wasn't directed specifically at communists or to weed out spies. They already knew who the spies were. The FBI knew full well. And at, at its peak, the Communist Party was 80,000, no more ever than 100,000 Americans. What it was is to drive out anyone who was a socialist, a progressive, a radical from these organizations to weaken their capacity to push forward the progressive agenda that FDR and, say, Henry Wallace is... You, you, you know, you say this right now, and I, I did my opening on Guatemala, and I'm reading a book called Bitter Fruit, which you probably know or may have read oh, yeah, sure. from the early 80s, and it's about the United uh, Fruit Company. And um, they ousted the United Fruit Company in conjunction with the U.S. government intertwined. Uh, former government officials went to the boards of the United Fruit Company, et cetera, et cetera. They all had financial interests in, in maintaining control because... The socialist-leaning, not communist-leaning, this is important, right. the com- there was a very weakened, barely existent communist party in Guatemala because that leader was looking for land reform, very basic land reform in right. the model of FDR. He wanted to create a version of FDR's New Deal in right. Guatemala. And so simultaneously, you're saying this, that that there were very few communists. There were very few communists there, but of course they smeared him as a communist, as being paid for by the Russia. You know, Russia had no interest, was not even involved in, in Central America. And it's just fascinating to see, like, these were the tactics. Yeah. Was It was always the tactic, clearly, yeah. we, we know this, but this is happening simultaneously. They were having conversations about FDR so is this was this so much I know we're going off on a tangent here a reaction was 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 the the attack on labor um Taft Hartley uh, uh obviously civil rights later but but was it so much just in a, uh, a way to reverse the work of FDR I mean yes, did they really go into ab- overdrive absolutely had to do with reversing well here's here, here's the thing so if just remember this that in just before the war there was already the smell of a uh, McCarthyite, McCarthyist, not McCarthy, McCarthyism, okay? The House on American Activities Committee that was originally organized in the 30s, which was supposed to investigate fascists, was taken over by right-wing Southern Democrats. That would be like right now, the hearings that they're having on Capitol Hill. Suddenly they start to put like YouTube hosts on stage from the left and they're like- That's right, they start calling left-wing podcasters to appear. Okay. Where were you on the day? Who were you texting? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so, okay. So, but so, and during the war, during the war, when business became all the more empowered because of the necessities of the war effort, but when they were empowered, there was a limit to their power because labor expanded dramatically during the war. The labor unions really grew in size during the war. Women were entering. They needed the labor. Yeah. during the war, like they need right now, during so then, crisis. So then, when F, okay, and FDR feeling, if you like, this sort of democratic impulse and imperative that labor, labor was, even the more tr- conservative unions wanted, they wanted more social democracy after World War II. They wanted it. It was, they actually campaigned heavily for FDR in 1944 and for the economic bill of rights that he proposed in 1944. So business was, they were revving up. They were get. by the way, a prime example, this is like the most, this is like a culture war thing, but this is a prime example of the difference between the 1930s and the late forties into the fifties on the part of capital. Up until World War II, business promoted private enterprise. 
after World War II, they promoted free enterprise. They, they changed the language, okay? They changed language because basically Americans were hostile to big business by, in the course of the 1930s. And through World War II, they really wanted more social democracy. Well, you know, business is smart. I mean, they pay people good money. They, they, they get smart people to work for them. And among the many things they did, okay, among the many things they did is during the war, they promoted a vision of post-war America in which Americans would have all the luxuries and all the benefits that usually were associated with at least the upper middle class and decidedly the rich. And they, and what, and basically the capacity for all of that was meant to be capital driven. But most Americans, they knew what Americans wanted. Most Americans might well have fantasized many of the things that they were portraying, but fundamentally what most Americans wanted is they wanted national health care, they wanted free education as far as people were capable of pursuing it. I mean, and they wanted it in the overwhelming majority, which is what led FDR to propose the Economic Bill of Rights. So when FDR passes away, and by the way, it's just about, we're at the, FDR passes away on April 12th, 1945. So we're, you know, it's something of an anniversary in this month of his death. But what happens is that Truman himself, though he's at first committed to doing these things, the way they go after the Truman and the, and the Democrats then is by way of this Red Scare stuff, okay? And undeniably, there were, they, there were communists in government and all of that. And even in light of the Cold War, okay, the fact is that you have certain rights to belong to the party of your choice. Spies are another thing, okay? Spies are spies and you do root out spies. Any government would seek to do that. But they pretty much knew who these folks were. So, every, so if you examine it in retrospect, it's, they're not worried about that. They're worried about the progressives and the and the left Democrats um, who were called- Never let a good crisis go to waste, right? Yeah, right. You, yeah, exactly. And so, okay, so where were we with this? Okay, so I think we did a thing. But it's So, jo so Joe Biden is now- It worked in foreign policy terms yeah. and it worked in domestic terms. And, you know, the best labor leader of the day was probably Walter Ruther. Walter Ruther was committed. He was a socialist. He was committed to social democracy. But what had happened was that the big business did not want national health care. They did not want the things associated with social democracy. But they wanted and were willing, they came to see the imperative of doing it, to negotiate with what you used to call big labor when labor was strong. They wanted to negotiate and provide private welfare to all these workers, okay. which by the way, that's another whole story and a whole trajectory. So it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, when I look at what Joe Biden is doing, it's like, it's like some ad person went to them, some very creative ad man was like, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna basically walk like whitewash, greenwash, whatever, new deal wash this. Yeah. And that, people are going to think you're doing some really progressive transformative things, but in actuality it's incremental and basically it's going to be phased out once the deadlines are hit. And, and it seems like that's, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't, every reporter who's writing about this is not an idiot. Like they're completely conscious of, of, of the legacy of FDR and the, the, the transformational 
I mean, even the infrastructure bill, it's like, it's, it's out, you know, we always have infrastructure bills. If you're keeping up with your government, if you're maintaining the oil on your car, but we haven't been maintaining the oil on our car. Exactly. For so many years, so many, so many, so many years, we have so utterly failed in these terms that American civil engineers have give us like a, at best a D plus when it comes to our infrastructure. And by the way, this will come back to haunt the Democrats sorely. I mean, here's, here's the thing. It already is haunting the Democrats. We didn't win in 2000. We, we barely okay. won in 2020, and we only got the, the presidential. We are SOL next cycle. We are going to lose a house, uh, uh, something. House What's or Senate, I don't know. Uh, SOL. I've heard of SOL. Something out of luck. Shit out of luck. Oh, okay, because I've heard of SOL. Can I say that? I don't Good know. I hope this doesn't right. get demonetized now. <laughs> Anyways. Um, <laughs> Continue. <laughs> okay. Well, what I'm talking about, I mean, the Democrats, we already know we're not, we're not, we're not, well, neither you nor I are paid. Well, maybe you're still in the Democratic Party, but I, I, I'm not. Actually, I confess, I did join the Brown County Democratic Party because we are going to, we're going to take back Wisconsin. So that's what I had to do. But having said that, what's going to happen is they're going to raise expectations amongst people. And if they can't do what needs doing, they're going to feel the same way after a couple of years of Biden as they did after decades of Democrats who failed them. By you know Carter, Clinton, Obama. What happened after Obama? Folks who would otherwise have voted even for a black Democrat voted for Trump in states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. They're going to blow it. Is, and blowing it is, by the way, what does that mean? Josh Hawley is president of the United States this time? I mean, who well, knows? It's interesting. So so Politico does this. Uh, let's put this this tweet up on, on screen. Our friend Bhaskar um, responded to a, a Politico tweet uh, where Laura, Laura Baron Lopez, uh, she had a quote in um, coming from Representative Clyburn, who yeah. said he's he is actually tired of the Biden FDR comparison, saying Biden's legacy this is amazing. If he's going to have credibility, must be much closer to Harry Truman than to than to FDR. FDR's legacy was not good for black people. I'm sorry, was Harry Truman good for black people? Well, I will tell you that Harry. <laughs> Truman, <laughs> actually, actually, look, I'm not telling you that any one of these people was ever truly committed. To, to racial equality. But what I am going to tell you is that Harry Truman, look, Harry Truman did important things in those terms. He's a great hat maker. Let's just be real. <laughs> Made the best hats in the I, world. I, I don't, I, look, I don't want to be accused of being a defend, yeah, I am going to defend Truman in one respect. The fact is that he, at the outset, he, 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 did, he did make an effort to pursue national health care. He did significant, he made significant efforts to do all of the things that FDR wanted to happen. He, he failed because the Republicans had taken control of Congress. Now, in terms of, the, on, on the question of race, okay, well, let's rem the fact is that he did, he did sign, well, first of all, he did sign an executive order desegregating the US military. Which is, but, and he did so because A. Philip Randolph, who had pressured successfully FDR in 1941 to desegregate the defense industries as we went into the war, 
by way of the March on Washington movement, which was then still a threat. Well, Randolph said, basically said, look, okay, the time has come, especially because they, they, the draft was gonna continue. He said, he was gonna call for a boycott by African-Americans of the military. Truman then signed Genius. that into law. But the other thing is, and this is in many ways really important. He created, he created, don't laugh when I put it this way. He created a commission it, which was called to secure these rights. And they laid out a civil rights agenda for all of the things that would then transpire, that they hoped they could move on, but actually set the agenda, one might say, strangely enough, for the civil rights movement to realize in the 1960s. And I think that, I think that is significant. Again, that's, he, but how, why? He knew damn well that if he didn't secure the Northern black vote, keep in mind, FDR won the black vote from the Republicans in the 1930s. African-Americans were Republicans because it was the party of Lincoln. Roosevelt won those votes. 71% of the black vote, say in 1936, went to FDR. It was a radical shift. And by the way, this is trivial, but a cultural item. African-Americans in the 1930s started naming their kids Franklin and Eleanor because they were so enamored of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. But let's come back to, back to Truman. Well, Truman knew, he knew damn well that 1948 was gonna be a very close election. I mean, he worried in one, in one sense because Henry Wallace might well run as he ended up running on a capital P progressive party ticket. Although in the end, his, uh, his, the votes for Wallace were not that significant, okay, in the election. Similarly, the Dixiecrats, as, as the party came to be known, the state's rights party, headed by Strom Thurmond as a very young man, would likely pull votes from the Democrats in the area that they could usually depend on the South. So Truman knew he better grab hold of what FDR had done and hold on to African-American votes in the North. So his his appeal to African-Americans by way of an executive order, by way of his, he was the first president to in-person speak to the NAACP convention. And he did it at the Lincoln Memorial, very interesting juxtaposition. So in essence, I mean, he was smart enough to make those things happen, okay, because he knew what he needed and, you know. Well, it's, um. I mean, the first, the first piece you're saying, the first piece you're saying is is interesting that um, we have to actually restore the civil rights vote, and and Absolutely. and there, uh, Clyburn, you know, if if that's the case, then great, live up to that legacy. But um, it's just interesting. It's 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 a fascinating. Here's the interesting thing too. You want us to ask why would Clyburn exactly why would he feel the need to slap FDR and kiss? Harry Truman. Well, why would he do Biden. that? That's that's the question. What is this really about? I think that's more Clyburn than directed by Biden or anything. I think that's Clyburn yeah. really I'm having so sure. much hostility towards the left, the new left, and uh, wanting to dis. I mean, I think there's just there's certain people who just have an extraordinary amount of hostility towards this left right now, and they can't let it go. And Clyburn yeah, has I, been a instrumental part of taking us on. Yeah, yeah, and I know. I guess we're running towards the end now, right? I don't want to. Okay, but 
the other the main thing about all this is the following that somebody said to me I don't know if anybody listening knows who Robert Randolph is. He's a great musician. It's called Robert Randolph and the Family Band. Um, and it just, I love his music. Absolutely. And he, he tweeted me, he said, why are people even bothering to ask these kinds of questions? And here's what I want to say. History does matter, okay? And it matters in the sense that we have people whom we, we, we respect, who serve as examples for us, exemplars. And the fact is that Biden or Ron Klain on his behalf had, has been hyping the fact that they intended to make a new administration, the Biden administration, a revival of the FDR kind of administration. What did that mean? It meant that you're going to mobilize American energies, you're gonna create jobs, you're going to provide, you're gonna literally change the role of government in American life. You're gonna transform the landscape and you are going to empower working people, men and women, black and white, okay? And, when, and people have, despite their lack of historical, their ability to take historical tests, they have a sense of what it means when you say FDR, the New Deal. And Americans want that. They really do. And I think maybe Clyburn's just afraid of just raising people's expectations too much. I mean, look, we know- I think that's a big part of it. I think that they, he doesn't want to set the course uh, for continued you know, demands from the yeah, There is a that's Southern it. Black political establishment, okay? And he probably is the man in charge. Without a doubt. Harvey K, Professor Harvey K, always a pleasure. Check Thank out his you. book, it's in the background. Grab that book, show it. Promote the book. Yeah, it just came out one year ago now. Where can people find FDR on democracy? Okay, well, if they, if they go to, it's, the publisher we'll is, is we'll Skyhorse, but if they go to the Simon & Schuster website and plug my name in, Harvey K, two of my books will come up. No, um, no Amazon. I'm not suggesting it. So I'm saying don't do Amazon. That's, that's I'm telling people. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there, there are other, otherwise, I, I bet the best thing to do is follow me on Twitter. There it is. There it is. We got it. 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 Oh, there it's up Great. there. Yeah. yeah, there we go. Simon Schuster. All right. Yeah. Professor Harvey K, much love. Good see you to soon. See you back. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate you. We will be right back with Arun Chowdhury and possibly Rep Rab, who I hate to tell everybody, but he's still stuck at the doctor. But if he makes it, it'll be awesome. If he doesn't, it's okay. Next week, every Thursday, but we get more time with a run. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Nomiki Show. I'm Nomiki Kanz, host extraordinaire. I am media trained. I know how to use technology. I've been doing this for a long time. Still don't know how to use a microphone. Uh, Arun Chowdhury, also trained in media and stuff and did, did, did the trainings to the people so that they know how to speak on the TV. <laughs> He's a political filmmaker. Uh, he is the former former uh, official and the first White House videographer, and he worked as creative director for Bernie Sanders' 2016 OG presidential yeah. campaign. I got to say, 2016 was I think we should have a segment where we have people from both sides that like, but neither was on either and debate which campaign was better. I'm gonna say 2016 was the best. It's just, it's hard because the it feels like a reelect without a victory when you have a campaign like 2016 and you can follow it up. 
So I think it's, you know what I mean? It's it, the 2020 people really had to work it out for them. And yeah. Well, there were a lot of professionals. I mean, they were really good professional, but just like professional professionals. Yes, that's not the segment today. I've just felt like throwing that out there. Anywho, hey, Arad, what's happening? We, I wanted to yeah, throw this story at you that I didn't prepare you with, but I just couldn't get over it. And I figured you're somebody who has a lot of opinions on this. So um, I am, uh, if, if, you, if you know a little bit about me, I once uh, trekked around with um, some cryptocurrency guys in Puerto Rico. Uh, I was not undercover, but they thought I loved them. And then at the end, when I started asking them really tough questions, like it was like the security force came out against me. And someday you will be able to see that footage. Uh, but for now, that's part of a documentary. Um, cryptocurrency is a fascination of mine and the culture around it. And I think there's a lot of uh, misinformation and I lose a lot of followers when I start criticizing it, but I lived in it for a good chunk of time. And uh, Bitcoin, uh, a, a Bitcoin company called Coinbase, the Coinbase CEO uh, commented about the company going public, saying this technology is here to say it's creating a ton of value in the world. So let's play that clip. And I'm going to ask you a little bit about this. I do think that, oh, you know, he actually looks like a Nazi too. helped um, the industry uh, move forward and help bring the future, you know, in sooner. So it happens sooner. And that we've done that with legitimizing crypto, following a trusted and regulated approach, uh, hopefully making it even easier to use in some ways. And, you know, by the way, it's not just it's not just us. There's a whole industry with a lot of amazing companies um, building and, and growing this space. That's why we call it the crypto economy. It's, it truly is a new economy. It has um, now, you know, hundreds and thousands of companies being created in this space. So I think, the, you know, hopefully Coinbase going public and having its direct listing is going to be viewed as kind of a landmark moment for the crypto space where, hey, this, this technology is here to stay. It's creating a ton of value in the world. So yeah, um, when the Mayor Andrew- Sooner is a great slogan though, right? The it's the future sooner. sooner. When Andrew Yang is our mayor and the, um, the New York City budget is being uh, allocated via Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> okay. So lots of feelings and thoughts about this. I'm not saying everybody, who, let me make it very clear. I'm not saying everybody who uses or has Bitcoin is a Nazi. I'm saying that the people who are designing it and orchestrated are Nazis. And I'm not saying, and, and you, they're gonna come after me, but let me tell you, the stuff I have on camera is horrifying. So let's just start with that. I, every opportunity I have to tell people about what is going on in the minds of these CEOs is not what you think it is. When four years ago, people thought Elon Musk was a cool guy, and then now we know who he is. Same thing with Bezos. So is this sort of, I mean, Arun, I, 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 I bring this up because, you know, remember when like everybody thought Mark Zuckerberg was really cool and like in the beginning, is this, is it, is it because, is it a product of the culture or do you think that no. this is in them? This yeah. is more than that because this also falls into that kind of American pattern of kind of panic over the reality of money, which is not anything new. I mean, not even ushering in with computers, like whether our money is real and what it is based on is something we have fought politics over and even fought each other to, you know, to, to bloody pulps in the street. And I think, especially in a pandemic, especially uh, in, a, in a sort of late capitalist economy where 
things are so, where it's so obvious that markets are fake and propped up and trillions of dollars disappear and appear. I think it's deeply upsetting psychologically to a lot of people and maybe even rightfully so. And crypto feels like a really good answer to that. That's interesting. Do you think that there's an, an intention, a, a, a messaging intention that is put out there by the executives of these crypto companies to, I mean, his messaging was very like creative, right? Like we're highly regulated. No, you're not. Like literally, you're not at all. Like there's yeah, no yeah, regulation. Like opposite of that, right. We're yeah, so yeah. transparent. You could see the code. Uh, you're literally not transparent. Like you're not at all. Like, yes, you can see the wiring, but like what are those wires going to and who's behind the wires and who's, you know what I mean? Like, it seems like yeah. everything is very intentional. So do you think that yeah, that's- Yeah, 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 but I think it's still the same playbook. You know, I mean, like even what you said now, it's like, what you see is what you get. You know, like this funny money you print on paper, who knows? Like a brick of gold is a brick of gold anywhere you go. So I do, I, I just, I still do think it, it is sort of a reincarnation of just sort of, uh, 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 of a hunger. And these are markets that people have preyed on. And you'll notice that for some reason, sort of gold, when it's, advertised for finds itself into extremely strange places, not just like Ron Paul kind of libertarian spaces, but very general conservative spaces. Right. Very, very interesting. Okay. We'll talk about this more in the future. I can't wait to have you on to, to chat about it. Um, in the meantime, uh, I, I want to play this clip of Senator Markey. Uh, we have some democracy issues in the United States to run. Um, I know you're in Berlin. You may not be on top of, uh, <laughs> on top of it. <laughs> But our democracy, lowercase d, is broken, and Senator Markey wants to fix it, and he's got some feels about it. Let's play that. And now it is up to us to repair that damage. Our democracy is in jeopardy today because the Supreme Court's standing is sorely damaged. And the way we repair it is straightforward. We undo the damage that the Republicans have done by restoring balance. And we do it by adding four seats to the court to create a 13-member Supreme Court. These four new seats to be filled by President Biden will reconstitute the United States Supreme Court. The bench will then rightly reflect the values of the majority of the American people on whose behalf they serve. Expanding the court is constitutional. So I, is, there's something I really want to ask about this. I feel like this is a hill he's willing to die on. And many well-respected Democrats, maybe not all progressive, maybe a little bit progressive, maybe like lean a little bit left, are willing to die on this hill. But the Democratic Party is not willing to die on the hill of how do we win midterms, which is also a crisis after a, a census year in which we're dealing with redistricting, in which we have hundreds of bills in the state legislatures right now attacking voting rights. There are democracy crises everywhere, but it doesn't end by expanding the Supreme Court or ending the filibuster, also important. But like, why do you think that they're willing to die on this and not on like some things that like you and I both know would be like, oh, maybe just like if you tweak it a little bit here, you could like have a real party in the state and actually like win some elections. Uh, I think this one is a, a hill that people already declared they're ready to die on, so they know that there's no votes to lose, like those sort of, those stakes have already uh, been claimed. Uh, and I think exactly as you say, this one fits the bill of a very specific kind of senator we had. There is no Senate squad, right? There's Bernie Sanders, 
Uh, you know, there's Elizabeth Warren. She's kind of in a different lane. And then there's you know, maybe even in the same lane as Ed Markey. I don't know. But like that kind of we're pretty progressive. You know, like it, it's a real lane there. And so I think this becomes very attractive because it's a way, it, because it is a hill to die on that has the support of kind of a broad majority of progressive and semi-progressive people. But I mean, yeah, is, it, is it, it going to happen, it, you think? I don't know if it's going to happen because Joe Manchin has pretty emphatically said it's not going to happen. And so the real test of this is uh, how many protesters how, can we get outside of his house? Yeah, yeah how That's tough can we be on Joe Manchin and how much does that move him? And I'm not sure the answer is much. So this is actually, I'm, I'm so glad you bring this up because we all, everybody's bitching about Joe Manchin, everybody. Yet no totally. one's doing anything. Like it's not just about yeah. challenging him electorally. It's like, nobody's doing anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. The pressure you on Schumer, you, you have, have to, to do it. it. Like, it's not just about bitching. Like you gotta show up outside of his house in West Virginia and have like poop on his lawn. You gotta make his life difficult and you gotta make Chuck Schumer's life difficult so that he makes his life difficult. And you gotta like, you know, make Joe Biden's life difficult so he makes it difficult because they're all just looking, oh, well, scapegoat Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin's like, that's my job. I'm loving it and no one's making my life difficult. So I'm just gonna get away with it. Yeah, it should at least, there should, needs to be a cost. It's the only way people react if there is a physical cost. And I do think that there should be, you know, nonstop phone calls going into his office. There should be tons and tons of digital activity. I think there should be, you know, it's very cheap for any organization who wants just to geofence places where he is going to be, places in West Virginia. Explain that. What does that mean? Geofence is when you only target digital ads into a certain physical area that you define. And of course, it's very cheap if you're paying for a few blocks around you know the state capital in West Virginia, Washington DC and you know and the like. So there's no reason why pressure shouldn't be put on him. There's no reason why shaming billboards shouldn't be put on the way from his house all the way to the Senate in Washington DC and the same in uh, in you know Charleston wherever he's from in West Virginia. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things to be done and they should all be done because it's a combination of all these things that wears people down. And I don't think he's a Superman like that. I think this stuff would bother him very quickly. He's no Mitch McConnell, you know, he's not some impervious, unthinking machine. I actually think he's quite sensitive. Yeah, and because he's never felt the pressure for real. I mean, he's, he doesn't, he doesn't feel the actual pressure and he likes being a likable guy. I mean, he is, that's the thing that people don't realize about him. He's not crocodile, man. When you listen to him talk, they're like, oh, he's actually very charming. And like, he's like, how are your kids doing? What's going on with Sally? Is she still in uh, soccer? How's the soccer? Like one of those guys. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's a real thing. Politicians are sociopaths and they want to be liked. So Right now, the people who like him are his donors and 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 Schumer and 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 Biden, but and and the the media shows, but like no one that doesn't like him is really in his face, so he's got to feel it in different ways. I mean, like my whole thing is like pretend you're the Westboro Baptist Church and like all of the energy that they put into hating, totally. right? Anybody, we've got to use that kind of energy and that kind of creativity, but like to save democracy. Yeah, no, and, and I think it is part of the problem of kind of resistance satisfaction or resistance fatigue or whatever it is that we see in the first 70 days of the Biden administration, even in some tweets that people will very much regret, I think even months from now, but we've sort of just seen people withdraw from public life in a really dramatic way and you, you just don't get the goods yeah. without the action.
And on, on, I mean, we're seeing it with the media space too. People are just like, oh, wait, so yeah. Mark, yeah, yeah. back. So we're not going to tune into anything. Um, real quick before we wrap, I, I want to touch on one thing that I know you have a lot of opinions on. Uh, the U.S. government has uh, pushed for sanctions of Russia. And we got a lot of feelings about Putin, of course. Uh, they've announced a sweeping series of sanctions against Russia over election interference, cyber hacking, and other harmful foreign activities. Okay, whether or not these things are true, which I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, more or less truth to some of this, um, whether it was the Russian government or not. And you've worked in Ukraine, you're very familiar with Eastern Europe, what's going on in, in many different Eastern European countries. But um, sanctions, is that gonna work? Putin's pretty rich. <laughs> number one, sanctions don't seem to work. And number two, they hurt the people who we don't want to hurt and we should, who we should be spending more time communicating with. Like, if this is really our geopolitical foe, how come we spend so little time communicating with the Russian people about anything? We simply have a lot of tools at our disposal to do so. And number three, we have actual troops gearing up for an actual war in which a lot of people are going to die on the border between Ukraine and Russia, you know, with separatists as the kind of buffered in between them, you know, so-called separatists. And every time we elevate um, these sort of squishy narratives that just seem Russia-phobic and don't really all add up, we diminish the actual physical geopolitical threat that happens. So like, there does seem to be no consequences for taking Crimea. There does seem to be no consequences for actually disrespecting uh, an actual border of a country. So I, I would like to see some, fo some focus on, uh, uh, on that in a way that doesn't just reflect sanctions, cyber, all this other stuff, you know? Like this, they're conflating these things. Is this basically a warning, given that there are troop troops amping up um, I mean, maybe, but everyone knows it's the whole play. So I don't think it feels like that. It just feels like you're gonna do something that we don't like. So we're gonna do the thing that we do that shows you that we did something. Proportionate response, you know, like whatever whatever it says in the traditional Washington blob book, you open it up and it's like, well, you could blow up one radar station or you can do sanctions for 10 months. You're like, well, the sanctions, like whatever, like things are just sort of being read out of that, I think, standard playbook and just being played. And I don't think it helps because we've been so primed in the wrong way by the media on Russia following the elections and all of those things that now that there are real things to talk about, we find ourselves at a, at a loss to escalate to something. We've already done, right. you know, it's right. back and forth on like, we see some assets, we give them up, we seize them. Now right. this guy, now this guy, it doesn't do anything. And the only people it might hurt are the actual people we should be talking to who are the Russian people. I have an idea. You know what they could do? They could um, seize all the properties that Russians have, have, the Russian oligarchs have taken their cash and bought up around New York and uh, yes. give it to homeless people. Totally. Yeah? Uh, some housing. Genius. Guess what? I am officially running for mayor of New York, uh, and that Russia. is my plan. <laughs> my plan to take on Russia. I'll win all the Upper West Side. Oh, it's too late. I can't file now. Um, <laughs> file to run. But but I would win because I would get all the move on uh, Upper West Side ladies who are like so anti-Putin in Russia. Uh, I would get all the 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 pr progressive, you know, taking on the real estate industry that worked Just out for me last umbrella. time crowd. <laughs> <laughs> that was the sliver fan. I couldn't get. I needed I needed the Upper West Side 
uh, anti-Bernie people, basically. <laughs> All right, wait, wait, one more question. I'm sorry, just because we are doing no, New York. No. Uh, we do have a super chat question and it is related to New York City mayor. Uh, they're asking me who I'm backing for mayor. I do not know yet. Uh, it's ranked choice voting. I personally think that there are a lot of problems with the field, I'll say, not with all the people. I think some of the people are extraordinary. I think the city is facing something that we don't even have, we haven't registered because they're just pushing everything, the can down the, what's that line? Just pushing the can away. Kicking pushing the can. Yeah, kicking yeah, the can, kick. like let's yeah. kick the can. Kick it, the, kick the don't can. Push yeah. Don't push it, kick the can. Um, and because of that, like we don't have a, we don't have a deep rooted understanding of like how bad the housing crisis is. We have some numbers. We know 30,000 people left Queens in 2020. Um, I'm sorry, just Long Island City in Astoria in 2020. Uh, We have some sense of numbers, but we don't have a real sense of like how bad the economy is about to hit. And with that, uh, I do think a little bit of experience matters. Um, In understanding bureaucracies, I don't know if the people who are running with experience are the ones that don't feel like would solve this and and that is a reflection also of just like a very weak bench like i will say Mm -hmm. speaking about housing uh and one specific candidate i just spent a few days in new york and was you know in an expensive media market and was inundated with ads for sean donovan uh you know is the former Former housing secretary yeah (laughs) yeah yeah in which the only thing he mentions about housing is what how big the budget was you know during the housing crisis or whatever not you know that he that he held not sort of any kind of transformative thing i mean look i think housing is such a crisis and there's not even like one policy fix for it it actually is a reprioritization in kind of a major way right of what is the goal of government in housing you know is it to protect is it to actually house people if that's the goal then we're going about it wrong like if if our goal is to sort of police people and you know make sure landlords get theirs and etc etc then there is a system that can be tinkered with but as it is now we sort of don't have a housing policy we have like a people problem which is where do we stick people so i i think just even redefining what the problem is is at the beginning of it. And so we need in all of our major cities, and I think especially New York needs, somebody with a deep understanding of how to like transform. You know, often you and I have our semi-fond talks about machine politics and stuff. We need one of these people who knows how to actually pull all the levers of power. You know, somebody who knows Very how well the yeah. functions as a animal, as an organism, to know what not what people do and why, and not what people do, but why they do it. So that the players can find those same needs in other tasks and other things, not just to shuffle things around and say, we have different priorities now. No, Imagine the fun. raw talent of Andrew Cuomo with morals. <laughs> it is why I think for even all the other problematic things he has on issues and stuff, it's why I do think Andrew Yang is not a great choice. I, okay, so thank you. I'm so because glad the, you just brought this he, up. He does not walk in knowing what a single level of power is, except for, you know, communication skills online, which are not nothing, but which are not going to like help transform a sanitation department, you know, into working with a housing authority, into working with a school system, into working with a foods program. I mean, come on. I can tell you one thing. If Andrew Yang is uh, elected mayor, there will be, he will be impeached. 
I can almost, I'm, this is me hundred percent predicted. It'll absolutely happen. You can quote me on it. And I say this because the crises we're about to face are so un, the, the, the MTA is an absolute disarray. Uh, the, we have a NYCHA housing problem. We have a lead crisis still in NYCHA housing. I mean, you know, I ran for public advocate. I'll go through the list of all the things. We have a CUNY crisis. Um, uh, CUNY is severely underfunded. We're, we're still owed uh, back money for our public schools. Um, you know, Mayor de Blasio, the complaints that people make about Mayor de Blasio being a bad manager, and I think that's very valid, um, it'll make him look like he was Ed Koch running around the city and taking credit for everything. That's how Mayor de Blasio is going to look compared to Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang literally does not know some very basic things about New York City when he's interviewed. And that, I don't care who you hire, who you bring on board, the buck stops with the mayor, as we know with de Blasio. De Blasio has a great group of people working for him, by the way. I mean, all of them have some people that are, you know, but a great group of people working for him. And the buck stops at the mayor. I don't know. I mean, how, how do you feel? Like, yeah, no, I feel he has a certain kind of aw shucks nature that people like when he's a candidate. That would become extremely unattractive as an executive on any level. You know, like he's somebody who's like, like you don't want the kind of a lot of folks attracted to politics, people who can't admit they don't know something, maybe bluster, maybe bluff. But then when you see someone who doesn't do that at all, you're like, oh, a little bluster, a little bluff. I need a little of that. Just give me, <laughs> give me a soup son of that on top. Please lie to me, lie to me. Yeah. <laughs> because I do, want, I do want to feel like you know more than me about something. Well, that was the appeal of, of just to go back to, to Andrew Cuomo, you know, during the crisis, I remember um, when he first started doing, just when he first started doing uh, the press conferences every day, the the, the yeah. Cuomo hour, whatever it was. Um, smart. It was very smart. But what I was watching in him is, and I am a huge critic of Andrew Cuomo, as anybody who has watched the show before knows, um, I was like, I understand what he's doing. He is making people feel. Yes feel like they're in control of the moment. And we all know is a bunch of smoke and mirrors. Let's talk about like, this for a sec. Let's yes. talk about this for a sec. What, what the, what the, exactly what you're describing is that process unfolding is a feeling, it's an emotion. And so when, even when we talk about political video or filmmaking or any of these things, it's only effective when it surfaces in emotions. So people are like, oh, it must have to be drama and life and death. You're like, no, no, no. It can just be somebody baking something correctly because that's an emotion. And the reason we all watch cop shows and cooking shows is not because we want to learn how to be detectives or cooks. It's because watching competent people do something we don't know how to do better than we think we could do at it is a warm, safe feeling, like sitting in the back of your parents' car while they're driving you home and you know, and it's raining and you don't know any, you just know that you're gonna get there and it's fine. Like this is the emotional satisfaction people get. And it's why they even have this sort of kind of start getting daddy issues with like Cuomo, like as the, as the thing goes on, because that's the emotions that it comes through. It's process being sold as feeling. It's law and order special victims unit. It's all the that's same amazing. thing. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. I never thought about it from that perspective. But yeah, I mean, he was, and it, it worked on a lot of people. People I know that despise him were like, but you know, at least he's handling this pretty well. And sure enough, he... <laughs> <laughs> that proved to be, but that's how sophisticated he is. During those press conferences, during the lockdown, there were people who actively, vocally have opposed Andrew Cuomo who were like, he's actually doing a decent job right Except now. Except for and, this, right. Yeah, yeah, but okay now. Yeah. <laughs> but oops, that's not true. <laughs> 
What a lie. Yeah. That's and how now we all hit refresh and we're like, oh, he's still there. Huh. And now more of them's here now. We didn't know about this layer of Andrew Cuomo. Um, yes, New York City politics and state politics never, you know, it's hard to believe that like a 10 years ago was Elliot Spitzer. It's hard to believe that like Alan Hevesy was in jail. No, people don't even know who these names are now. They're like, Alan who? Alan Hevesy went to jail. Shelly Silver, the last product of the uh, Tammany Hall machine is still like bouncing around from jail to jail. Dean Scalos, these are just like a few years ago. But if those folks didn't go down, it wouldn't have created this opening for basically this new iteration. Like Andrew Yang would have oh, never even had a path had we not had all these corruption scandals of the early uh, 2010s and, and mid 2000s. Yeah, and frankly, a once in a many generation, you know, the equivalent of a thousand year flood opportunity to actually bring order to the worst electoral law state in the country and maybe allow New York to sort of reflect the values of its citizens a little more. Uh, and that's what I think will transform the Democratic Party is when places like New York are allowed to fully express their politics instead of just being mired in this endless machine. 100%. Rip, blah, 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 blah. So with that, everybody show up to Chuck Schumer's house and demand that he pressure Joe Manchin because he is a newer politician. He uh, is a product of the machine and he does understand. Promise that you will write a handwritten note to AOC asking her not to primary him. <laughs> That's it. Listen, she should say, I'm not primarying you, but I need something out of it. I'm gonna need one more thing. One more thing. Oh, that's, we should pressure AOC. AOC, tell Schumer, the only way you're not gonna primary him is if he pressures Joe Manchin to stop being an effing dickhead. No offense that's to people what, who have our dickheads. Yes. <laughs> Arun Chowdhury, always a pleasure waving at you across the pond. Uh, thanks for joining us. Hope you had a nice time in New York and uh, we will see you next week week all right everybody tomorrow is femme friday you gotta love it we run's never done femme fridays i think laura has we gotta get your wife laura back on um laura moser is a a great activist and writer as well i uh, ran for congress uh in texas you may remember that race okay here's some shout outs kowalski from nebraska i'm making a cryptocurrency kernel coin corn backed I'm not saying that 10 times fast. <laughs> Evan, thank you and Harvey for the history lesson. He always has great history lesson lessons. Oh, Daniel Castle says, we need some Nomi, Nomi key oopsies merchandise. That's a good point. That's a new thing I've been doing lately. Oopsies, oopsies, oopsies. We're going to do a bunch of um, merch, I think. We got to work on it. All right, so what else do we have here? Ken M, sending some love. Thank you. And here we go. Kyla Rosado says, Nomi key, have you and Matriarch looked into... Alexandra Hunt, Jessica Mason, and uh, Michaela Wilkes yet. They're so cool, I love them. Um, I am on the political committee of Matrix. I, so there's a greater board. Um, we do get regular uh, endorse, or, uh, uh, what are they called? Regular uh, suggestions for candidates. I think it's a little early in the cycle for to, to be endorsing. We're gonna start doing that. Um, once a lot of these these lines are, so there's redistricting happening. I don't know how many people know that. So we actually don't really know what the districts are gonna look like. Most of the states um, have are, are, are haven't even started the process yet of redistricting. Um, New York, for instance, you probably won't even know until next year what the lines are gonna look like. And that's a big factor in a lot of these races. So we are going to make sure that this process, um, when people 
uh, refer candidates over that we, just as we did last time, we do a real like, you know, we do a lot of research on the candidates and the districts and uh, we interview candidates, which we did extensively. And we had an amazing uh, slate in 20, in 2020. And this cycle uh, we have, where we're supporting Senator Nina Turner, who's in a special election. So uh, that's kind of a little bit about the process if you're curious. All right, who else do we have here? All right, uh, well, of course, Harvey K. thank you uh, for joining and mixing it up in the live chat as always. Special thanks to our hero in the Twitch chat, Kai L. Marks, we see you. I love that, oh my God, Kai L. Marks. Am I reading that wrong? No, it's Call L. Marks, I love it. I love it, I love it, I love it, that's awesome. Uh, shout out to Midi Docs, Mario, and everyone who's working those algorithms, those pesky little algorithms. And of course, thank you to our moderators on YouTube, Bob C, Choking the Orb, and Chuck Diesel, and over at Twitch, Twitcheroo, Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Nug Wrangler, Our Means, and you know, no Nightbot wasn't there today? Oh, look at that. Dorsey, were you sad there was no Nightbot? All right, well, thank you guys for keeping our chat rooms <laughs> troll-free. Dorsey is sad, he's sad. <laughs> we'll see you tomorrow. Stay in solidarity.